2: Hello, and welcome back to the Agora Podcast Network's The Exchange. I'm Tom Daly. Did you miss me? Because, boy oh boy folks, did I miss all of you lovely people. Before we get started today, I want to just thank my dear comrades, Stephen Guerra and Royfield Brown, who so ably filled in for me in my absence, and I regret that I missed the opportunity to introduce listeners to Heather Tesco, and Alison Gerlock, but Steve and Royfield did such a good job and those ladies were so compelling and engaging, you probably didn't even notice I was missing. But now that I'm safely ensconced once more behind the microphone, I have a real treat for you today. In a special episode of The Exchange, just as I did several months ago when I spoke to the original Lesser Bonapartes, I'm casting my line outside the Agora Podcast Network pool to bring you one of the premier history podcasters the genre has to offer. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very lucky today to present to you Jamie Redfern. Jamie has been producing podcasts since the age of 16 and is responsible for the A History of podcast franchise, which includes completed series on the life of Alexander, and a history of Hannibal and the Punic Wars, as well as two ongoing interests in the Arab Spring, a history, and a history of the United States. Jamie Redfern is an entertaining host and an unimpeachable historian, who takes care to present a complete and balanced work product for his listeners, while neither missing the opportunity for a pun or pop culture reference, nor failing to maintain his acerbic wit. So without further ado, may I introduce to you the Princeps of Podcasts, the Sultan of Sound, the Manchester Mauler, the one, the only, Jamie Redfern. Jamie Redfern, welcome to The Exchange.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, you are a, uh, a well-known podcasting superstar, <laughs> um, a, a pretty much an original podcaster and OG. Um, And I think it's worth noting that that you started out as a bit of a prodigy and have been involved with the medium literally your entire adult life. So I I wondered if you would start today um, maybe by walking us through your podcast career up to this point.
1: Okay. Um, So I uh, started uh, six and a bit years ago, um, I think when I was 16. Um I first got into podcasting by uh, I think it was during the summer holidays um after um I'd left high school and I was just like browsing around iTunes and I saw ooh podcasts what are those clicks on it and then saw history and I thought oh what can I find there clicks on it and then the very first thing I found was Mike Duncan's The History of Rome um so I thought well obviously I'm going to listen to this and then devoured that um, and then very quickly thought, wait, if he can talk about history into a microphone, surely I can do that too. So I thought I'd give it a go. And um it took me a long time, like half a year, to work out how to do the technical side of things. Uh, but I started with a series of about six episodes on um, Irish history in like the 1900s. No, 1800s, which was just abysmal. Uh, because I was just working out what I was doing. Um, but after that, I started work on like a real series about Alexander the Great. Um, did that, then moved on to doing one on Hannibal and the Punic Wars. Uh, and then from there, I branched out into multiple series. I started doing one on the Arab Spring. And then my most recent endeavor is the History of the United States podcast. No, A History of the United States. And um, I th- I started that about a year ago. And mm-hmm. I very recently, uh, at the time of recording yesterday, launched that feed in Italian, which is my latest podcasting adventure.
2: Because you just decided to pick up Italian on a whim.
1: Uh, pretty much. Um, yeah. I was <laughs> like, oh, I- <laughs> like, oh, learning Italian would be really good i've got italian friends i'd like to talk to them in italian and then i thought oh wait it'd be a great way to learn it if i was like translating all my podcasts into italian because i think when you're like talking with friends over coffee the type of vocabulary that you'd use is that of um 16th 16th and 17th century colonialism i think Hmm. that's what most people like to talk about
2: (laughs) (laughs) now do you do you speak any other languages
1: Um, I speak, um, I'd say I speak well four languages, um, English, Latin, ancient Greek, and Italian, and then I speak bits of other languages, but I wouldn't say I'm anything like fluent, more like I can read bits and then speak odd words, like, um, a bit of German, French, Spanish, and the tiniest bit of Mandarin, but that's, um quite a confusing language to learn i mean come on get on it (laughs) Uh, yeah i think um i like spent a few weeks working on that and i got as far as um i think about 20 or 30 words i could write and then i thought this is taking way too long (laughs) um yeah
2: i'd actually like to break down um you know this intellectual life a bit um so at the moment, you you are a trained historian uh, with a master's degree in, in classical history, is that right?
1: Yes. Uh, MA in Classics and Ancient History.
2: Okay. Now, throughout the entirety of the time, you've worked on Alexander, and for most of the time you worked on Hannibal, that wasn't necessarily the case. You were working towards that, I assume.
1: Yes. Okay. Um, I started work on Alexander about when I started my undergraduate degree, and then... Work, I finished that in the first year of my degree, and then Hannibal was during my undergraduate, and then eventually my master's degree, okay. until finishing it a few weeks ago.
2: Yes, you did. Uh, now, I was just wondering, um, is there a chicken and the egg thing going on here? Uh, by which I mean, did your podcasting help shape the course of your interests in education? Or has podcasting just been a component part of the grand sweeping tale Uh, That is The Education of Jamie Redfern. It's
1: a very, it's like a mixture. Like, I started out with an interest in history. I've always had that. But my interest in Roman history specifically started with um, podcasting and Mike's The History of Rome. So listening to that sparked an interest in specifically ancient history um at the same time as I was doing a course in ancient history in college. And then that gradually became a classics degree. Um which further led to me doing like podcasts on the stuff. Um as like as my ability to like read ancient sources increased, so I was like more interested in podcasting in it. So I was more interested in reading about it and so on and so forth.
2: Right on. Now it's been a while since you finished the uh, the Alexander the Great series, uh, so that's quite a ways in the rearview mirror. And I know you've actually, in between your original and now, released a remastered version of it. But looking back, is there anything you would have done differently at the time? Oh, I think...
1: Had I done it differently, I'd have... Um sorted out my technical side of things better before actually starting because I've been plagued by technical difficulties throughout my podcasting career. I've probably had about a year and a half where I haven't actually been able to release any episodes over the past six years because of technical difficulties. Um, Like simply not having the right setup on my websites and I'd have rather have gone a bit more professional at the beginning, but I'd have no had no way of knowing that at the age of 16. Right. Like, I had no idea how to make a website. And it was a lot harder to set up back then because you didn't really have that many. Um, there weren't that many podcasts. It wasn't a big thing. Whenever I spoke to anyone about it, I had to explain what a podcast was. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't the same community of history podcasters that there is now
2: right there really is a there really is a cottage industry that's kind of grown up around it um you know in the intervening years, and you were actually a big part of fostering that you know from my view as a more recent addition uh to the podcast community it's been about a year and a half now that I've been kind of hanging around but uh you've always been at the forefront of it as as an outside uh witness um now as you alluded to you uh, wrapped up the history of Hannibal and the Punic Wars, uh, you know, which was a rather large project that spanned several years um, and with a few starts and stops. Um, but now I guess my question is, I've never finished a series. What on earth is that like? Is it a uh, relief? Is it bittersweet? You know, did you happy cry or maintain an appropriately stiff upper lip? <laughs> um, I'd say it's a very strange
1: feeling to have something that's been a huge part of your life for so many years to be over. But at the same time, there's always, when you're working on a project for so long, there's that thing in the back of your mind where you're like, oh, I want this to be finished. Like, I always need to work on it. Like, there's always something saying that, oh, I'm out having fun, but perhaps I should be reading Livy instead in order to get this done. Right. But it's like I'm still getting used to it the fact that for so many years um, I always used to have my writing time would be Saturday afternoons I'd set myself up at my desk I would put on the radio listen to football and I would open up my Livy and my Polybius and I'd write for several hours and it's weird when listening to the radio and not having Livy open It's like that, it's an association in my brain that I always Hmm. associate the radio with Livy. (laughs) (laughs) It's weird that 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 isn't a thing in my life anymore. That, it takes a bit of getting used to. Um, It was a little bit emotional though, like putting out the final episode. Um, I'd like to say I maintained the stiff British upper lip, but um, it, it was definitely a lot of feelings going on there.
2: Yeah, I can only imagine. You know, luckily you do have some active podcasts to fill up that time, even if you don't need Livy for them. Oh yes, um, <laughs> I, I guess I would want to just quick quickly transition to the Arab Spring. Um, now, you know, I recall back in 2010 when the idea of the Arab Spring was you know viewed with guarded optimism by the West, and it seems during the intervening years uh, they have not necessarily been kind to the arab spring and it may have sort of taken on some connotations of a frankenstein monster to some you know an experiment spiraling out of control or a lesson in the dangers of unintended consequences you know so i'd like to ask you know what had your approach been to the arab spring when you first started out and and now how has it evolved you know as your historical knowledge of the subject has deepened and the actual circumstances in the region has changed
1: It certainly had a big effect on the way that I've approached the topic. In the very first episode, I had that same optimistic perspective. Um, It wasn't openly stated, it was more subtext. Um, But my approach back then was always going to be how did we get to the actual um, the revolution itself and explaining why the revolution happened. Or... uh, I don't know, revolutions is probably not quite the right word, but attempted revolutions. But in the intervening years, I've altered it slightly. So in addition to explaining that, I want to also look at the more underlying factors of why it went wrong, where that wasn't initially in my um, my plan for exploring, like, this is why these things worked, but at the same time, this is why there were always going to be difficulties. Um, In particular... Um, something that didn't even exist when I started doing the podcast, is ISIS. And Mm -hmm. that suddenly having to explain um, how a splinter group of Al-Qaeda in Iraq became the Islamic State, and why it was so successful, and now why it's less
2: successful, let's put it that way. Right. I guess then, so... Why don't you just take a moment and concisely lay out the grand strategy of, you know, what the solution is to all these problems. (laughs) We're all listening.
1: Okay. Um, The way I have tried to explain it, when I'm putting it simply, is that the fundamental issue is that... um, there is a lack of legitimacy in the region. That what little sources of power there are, are generally supported by outside regimes and have little support within the countries themselves. So either you have uh, dictatorships which cause resentment as de- demonstrated by the revolution in Egypt, mm-hmm. um, or you have regimes that may lose the support of the West, and then you get a situation such as Iraq, where the removal of Saddam Hussein... Uh, because he was removed, there was no local legitimate source of power, so there was a power vacuum. And what would happen in those scenarios is the fr- the militant fringes are generally able to gain control. So what you need in order to fix the problem of instability is for the various states around the Middle East to have democratic institutions that are supported by the West, but not controlled by the West. So, um, if there were a legitimate government in, say, Iraq or in Syria, which was allowed to disagree with the West, allowed to pursue different policies without intervention, then it would have credibility with its people, and it would be able to bring about some sort of stability without people needing, feeling the need to resort to radical fringes in order to protect themselves is or
2: authoritarian uh, strongmen yes as in Egypt as in Egypt
1: where um, yes that's the other alternative
2: okay that's a so... very simple version yeah. of it because
1: it's really really complicated um, but that's my understanding of it anyway of how to fix the Middle East
2: Well, this is uh, this is kind of, I guess, uh, a theoretical digression, you know, but are legitimate democratic institutions to be expected in regions that don't have a history necessarily of democratic institutions? Yes. Like I've always viewed, say, the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution is that the Americans had this sort of parliamentarian background. Of understanding of how basic democratic institutions worked, where the French coming from an absolutist monarchy didn't
1: I think it definitely takes time in order for such principles to be established. I think that there are examples, um, such as Japan and South Korea after the Second World War, of showing how it can work. The It's a very good example by the rebuilding them. of Germany after the Second World War as well, and, like, the reunification is a great example of how, like, democratic institutions can be developed, but at the same time, they also work as warnings, where after they were first introduced properly after the First World War, there was the lean towards authoritarianism in the Weimar Republic, which resulted in Hitler. Um, <laughs> oh, we got there. I have to mention him, obviously. <laughs> um, but I'd say it definitely takes time and that's a big reason for, I think, is that people are very short-sighted and that they think, oh, if something hasn't been set up in, like, one year or five years, then it's never going to work. When the fact is that when dealing with history, you need to think in terms of centuries rather than years.
2: Yeah, the the time to let it breathe and sort itself out in the 21st century is unfortunately uh, a perspective that's short in supply, particularly on a four-year election cycle like we have here.
1: Yeah, where there's always the demand for instant results rather than long-term strategic planning. Yes,
2: exactly. (laughs) Well, okay, so that's going to remain a quagmire for the remainder of this interview. Um, So let's move on to the the main event, a history of the United States. Now, uh, you are the first... You, American history podcaster I've interviewed, that's usually uh, a role reserved for me. <laughs> uh, so obviously we are bitter rivals, uh, just like Holmes and Moriarty, uh, Napoleon and Wellington, or Maggie Simpson and Baby Gerald. Mm-hmm. And we are locked in an epic struggle to the death where only one of us can survive. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, in all seriousness... Um, you know, I, I love your podcast. I think you're doing a predictably incredible job so far. Now you've done over 50 episodes, and you've covered the founding of the Chesapeake and New England colonies.
0: But what I assume- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile, with the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Especially like is your dedication to sort of rolling up your sleeves and getting into the nitty gritty of the politics of sort of each of these settlements, um, you know, between the settlers and the natives, between the colonists and England, between the settlements themselves. And I also really appreciate the thoughtfulness you show in discussing the development of local economies Um, as well as that multifaceted impact religion has played uh, in the new world. So I guess my question would be, why did you choose to do a chronological podcast of the United States as someone who's British and trained in the classics? Um, That's a
1: very good question. After I finished, or after it seemed towards I was going to be finishing Hannibal, I was looking for a new project, something new to do, um, and I was considering a variety of topics, and I was particularly leaning towards covering an overview of the fall of the Roman Empire, and um, which was the topic of my uh, master's dissertation. So it's something I know a lot more about than, at least when I started, than, say, the overall span of US history. But I felt that no one had really done um Like a chronological overview of unit of the United States, and it's always been a topic that i've been very interested in, but never found like an excuse to throw myself into it like i've always like um, the era of good feelings for example mm-hmm. was something i've known about for a very long time, but i've never had a good reason for me to be able to say right i 'm going to spend like a hundred hours reading about this. And it was almost an excuse, like doing it was almost an excuse for me to be able to do something I've always wanted to do. And then, as with everything I've ever done in my life, as soon as I started doing it, it very took, quickly took on its own character and wasn't really what I expected it to be at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like I wasn't necessarily expecting to go so deep into each colony's history when I started. It sort of, I found out that the early colonial era was a lot more interesting than i was expecting it to be because it always gets brushed over so i thought right. like oh yeah this is really interesting looking at how the early decisions in each of these colonies has such a effect on its later history and it really helps like complete the picture of like why the south became more agricultural the um Mercantile nature of the North Or Mm -hmm. the unique Qualities of Rhode Island,
2: for example Like how they came about So what has been the most interesting Part of this journey so far?
1: I would say the Thing that I found the most interesting So far um, I think Really was Probably When I started Like, I've been absolutely fascinated By Virginia that it wasn't something I'd ever really considered before I started doing it. Like, I knew that, oh, Jamestown and all that. But being able to explore like how quickly it developed and why it became the... Or how it got to the position that, during the Revolution, most of the senior figures came from Virginia. Mm. Like, like, filling that mental gap inside my head of how it got from Jamestown to that has been the thing that's really captured my imagination so far. That and the religious side of things. Because theology is one of those subjects that I find baffling whenever I try and get into it. Um but dealing with Puritanism in a lot of detail, um I found out that I like the subject a lot more than I thought they would do. Those have been the of the things I've covered so far, those are what I'm liking but i'm also writing right now a series of episodes about native american history which i'm very much enjoying working on but that won't be out for another couple of months
2: oh that's excellent is that going to be on your main feed or is that going to be a continuance of your uh, premium feed which you should feel free to plug
1: (laughs) oh yes um i have a bonus feed for the history of the united states where we cover like the like um complete the story, is how I've phrased it before. Um, so at the moment, it's a series of episodes all about the Aztecs and the Spanish conquest. Uh, but no, this is going to be on the free feed. Um, as soon as I'm finished with getting all the colonies up to about 1680, I'm going to go back to about 80,000 B.C., and explore the colonization of North America and try and get into as much detail as I can do. Like right now I'm looking at the domestication of the dog, which I wasn't expecting at all to be researching, but it's it's quite something.
2: Oh that's that's red ferdian of you. It really um. is. It really is. <laughs> All right, Jamie. By by ways of sort of wrapping up, um, you know, I don't generally get into to current events much on the show, but we've already kind of popped that bubble with the uh, uh, the Arab Spring. So I wanted to get your take on on two things that are currently, as of the time of recording, going on, which you have vested interests in both as a human and a podcaster. Uh, first is is Brexit now that there's some distance and the sky hasn't necessarily fallen yet. And the other is the clusterfuck, which is uh, the American presidential elections. Ah, yes.
1: (laughs) Um, Two subject matters I have very strong opinions on.
2: (laughs) Before you start, I'm going to now have to uh, label this uh, explicit, but there's no other word to describe the American presidential elections, so... I give you the floor.
1: (laughs) Yeah. uh, I'll I'll start with Brexit before moving on to the... um, towards uh, the election. Um, Brexit is something I... I'm still a bit shell-shocked about. I still can't quite believe that it's happened. But at the same time, I'm not convinced it is going to happen. Um, Because of all the... Rumours that I've heard, or that have been swirling around, about ways of stopping the procedure from happening. Um, For instance, it would need to be voted through by Parliament, and there's a lot of discussion about because most MPs do not want a Brexit, so whether they could block it, or that Scotland has a constitutional ability to block it due to the nature of British devolution. Um, I think I'm on record as being a fierce supporter of the European Union, or at the very least of what the European Union is trying to be, because what it is right now is not the... um, It's not as good as it can be. I don't think anyone is going to defend it of what it exactly is right now. So I'm also, at the same time as fiercely wanting the UK to remain inside the European Union, thinking that perhaps the European Union might not be the institution that it should be, and perhaps a different sort of institution replacing it would be a better way of going about things. Perhaps a looser customs union would be the best way of advancing European cooperation rather than the EU itself per se.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, I could see a possibility where the EU gets dismantled and um, the sort of bureaucratic nature of it gets removed, and instead, there is. It's a primarily an economic union rather than a proto political union that it is right now. Like, I would love a polit- full on political united federated states of Europe or what have you. But I know that's a long, long way away from ever happening, mm-hmm. and so that by forcing the EU right now, it might be shooting the effort in the foot, and so perhaps a slightly less forceful way of dealing with things might be better. Sort of like one that would promote freedom of movement, freedom of work, and the, um, and the trade bloc, but might lose some of the more unpopular elements.
2: That's rolling it back substantially from what it was envisioned of being back to almost the 1970s.
1: Yeah, that's what I can see happening because there is that much dissatisfaction with it that perhaps it might be easier to start from scratch, so to speak, like go back to... Because I I doubt that the euro is going to last that much longer and I think if the euro falls, then the EU won't be long behind it. So it, it might be a better way of doing... It's if we if you have a fresh start, so to speak.
2: Okay, you heard it here. Jamie Redfern <laughs> calls for the dissolution of the European <laughs> Union, gentlemen, ladies, and gentlemen. Uh, yeah, I guess I did it.
1: it um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and now uh, U.S. <laughs> politics. Um,
2: Go ahead, stick your other foot in it. Okay,
1: I think I should. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: oh, I'm really gonna. Oh, things i'm going to say uh, <laughs> i'm just going to give you a warning that perhaps you might not want to listen to this um if you're of a certain political persuasion
2: um or just learn to respect the opinions of others <laughs> and be a grown-up but this is the internet um this is true. i think shocked
1: but not surprised is a a good way of describing the entire election cycle Like, I think, to start with the Democrats, I'm not really surprised at all by what's going on there. Um, Because, I mean, if you look at general voting habits, most Democrats only really vote in the presidential elections, and they generally avoid states and gubernatorial races, um, which leads to a Republican slant among governors, which means that there are less Democratic nominees for president. So I'm not that surprised that Hillary Clinton has swept the field. Um, although the Sanders insurgency was very interesting. And then the Republicans, where do you even begin with the Republicans? I was reading something very interesting a few days ago, a piece in the New York Times, which was explaining both nominees um, through the lens of the 1960s sexual revolution. Um, that The creation of the working mum created Hillary Clinton um, Mm -hmm. while the male revolution, which uh, was generally embodied by Hugh Hefner um, created a lot of sort of like men who were not happy with their situation and felt that their sort of their role in society was being usurped by these women and you got a lot of angry Uh, generally uneducated white men who generally support Trump. And if you sort of examine that in the long term, like over the last 50 years, it's a trend that would make Trump seem not that surprising. That and the, um, I guess, the way that the Tea Party kind of hijacked what the Republican Party used to be. And so it isn't that surprising that it's ended up as uh, a bit of a mess right now, I think is a, a polite way of putting it
2: mildly uh, i just want to interject one thing about hugh hefner um unlike donald trump hefner was a huge supporter of the civil rights movement so oh yeah i don't little, mean a little bit of credit to hugh there yeah oh yeah i didn't not... think you meant anything against Hugh, but just pointing that out to the listeners
1: yeah more um people who wished that they were hugh hefner rather exactly. than hugh hefner himself it's a very interesting article though if you can find it i don't remember what it was called, but i'd recommend reading it
2: but yeah, the, the Tea Party insurgency that, that I guess started in, what, 2009? Yeah. You know, it always always struck me, um, I don't know, you've, you've read some Jefferson, I believe, when he's talking about the Missouri Compromise. He writes this letter uh, where he's talking about slavery as the wolf we have by the ears that we can neither safely let go nor hold on to. And that's what I felt that the Tea Party has sort of become for the Republicans and eventually you know they can't hold on and the party now is the tea party and i I do wonder if there's any room for the birth of of new parties in the united states Uh, i tend to doubt that but you know what's your view
1: i think the next election cycle is going to be very interesting seeing what happens um what i'm I'm not saying that this is going to happen, but what I could see as a distinct possibility right now is that with the base having sort of like hijacks the Republican party and taking it to the extreme right that it's left a lot of the leadership and a lot of um, middle America feeling that it's not necess- it can't be Republican anymore. So I could see the leadership. And that group of society moving towards the libertarian party, and not becoming libertarian, but sort of reforming the libertarian party into like a cross between what it is now and a bit of the old Republican party.
2: Between Gary Johnson and something viable.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> that that uh, that could be an angle that would. Gain the support of the of the small government type. The, I think, like the Republican Party was traditionally the small government type, and it's become the no government type, which is unfeasible. So, if the Libertarian Party could become a sensible small party, um, a small government party, then that could work in America. Um, because I I think that's where like most Americans seem to lie is they just need someone to, I guess, seize that middle ground in American politics. I feel the need to add that because American politics is, as a rule, so far to the right compared to British politics.
2: Yeah, the crazy thing is it seems to me that the middle ground is really uh, occupied by the Democrats, Mm. where what's actually absent from the American political spectrum is, is a real liberal party. Um, but then you get people, you know, shouting, frothing at the mouth, that Barack Obama is the most liberal president that's ever existed when if you even look at the last seventy years of American politics, I mean he's not further to the left than Richard Nixon. Mm. Certainly c- not any more liberal than George H. W. <laughs> Bush. If he were
1: in the UK, I think he would be a conservative is how I would describe his political opinion, is it's not that much different from the British Conservative Party um, which is at the right end of our political spectrum. It's not as far as um, UKIP, which is I think where the Tea Party would be in um, in the US, but pretty much all of our politics, aside from the Conservatives, is quite far to the left of America.
2: So if you're all done alienating listeners...
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I never talk about politics on my show. <laughs>
2: well, th- uh, Luckily, this isn't our show. These uh, are neither of our main shows. So well, a it's bit fine. Of, uh, it's fine. Yeah, as long as we're objective and stoic when we come to our main topics, we'll be okay. At least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> it's, um, like, this is my, like, opinion,
1: but I wouldn't let that affect my narrative. Which is absolutely that's the that's the best part about being a historian. If I can like give the game away a little bit, um, is that I love the fact that, and i I don't do this, I'd never do this, but the fact by saying you're impartial and taking an impartial tone means people will assume that you're being impartial. When really, if you want to be clever, you can put a lot of bias into it, and by taking a it's like a neutral tone. Like, you can make people believe things. And that's something that the listeners should watch out for. I would never do that. I'm sure you wouldn't either,
2: but... No. No. But I, I, on the other... The flip side of that, you know, I've noticed that you can actually back an argument up with objective facts and be accused of being biased because somehow the facts... Oh, yeah, that's... Aren't the... being neutral. Yeah. It's... <laughs> that's the yeah, that's the flip side of the coin. Yeah. But, well, Jamie, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join me here on The Exchange today. It's been, I think, a very interesting uh, conversation. I'm glad we got to hear more about you and your podcasting career and, uh, you know, talk a little bit about the world that we live in. Are there any plugs that you'd like to make before we say goodbye?
1: Um, if you would like to, uh, if you've never heard of me before and you're like, oh, this Jamie Guy, he's smashing. I'd like to get more of his stuff. Uh, then you can go to my website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and you can follow me on Twitter, at History Jamie, and those are probably like, the best ways of getting more information about me. If you want to go to Twitter, there is a great series of Brexit tweets that I did a few months ago. I'm sure they're <laughs> hidden somewhere. <laughs> if you want to see me, like, throthing at the mouth with anger, that's a, a great place to go.
2: That was quite entertaining as a witness.
1: (laughs) Uh, My just complete mental implosion over the course of two weeks.
2: (laughs) It was an emotional time, I'm sure.
1: Oh, yes, it was.
2: Okay, sir. Well, thank you very much, and you have a great day.
1: Thank you, you too, and you too, dear listener. Bye.